Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For over 10 years, VOC Nation has taken listeners behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Our hosts are not only experts on the business, but have lived in the business. Subscribe and hear weekly podcasts from hosts like legendary pro wrestling journalist Bill After, former Impact Wrestling star Wes Briscoe, former WWE and AWA broadcaster Ken Resnick, former WWE and TNA star Shelly Martinez, former WCW star The Maestro, NWA legend, the Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez, and much more. VOC Nation programming is free on most major podcasting apps, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Radio.com. And video podcast and bonus content is available on Patreon for as low as $3 a month. What are you waiting for? Head to VOCNation.com and dig into the most comprehensive podcast network built for pro wrestling fans. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at VOC Nation Wrestling Network and follow us on Twitter at VOC Nation. Thank you for joining another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm your host, Brian Ferguson. My guest today is a well-known wrestling historian, writer, commentator, and ring announcer, and a true pro wrestling fan. Ever since, he's attended his first wrestling card in the St. Paul Auditorium, where the main event was Ivan and Carol Kamakov versus fellow heels Mitsu Arakawa and Kinji Shiboya, he was hooked. He has been deeply involved in the world of pro wrestling as a historian. He has written several books, including Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling. In 2013, he was awarded the James C. Melby Wrestling Historian Award from the Cauliflower Alley Club. He is retired from a 35-year career in banking. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce Mr. George Shire. George, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to be on Bumps and Thumps. You are welcome. And, you know, I, I listened to your intro, and, uh, wow, that's, that's what you call putting me over. <laughs> well, it's all true. So, you know, uh, I did some research on you, and, you know, you've got a lot of great uh, stories and, and a background and, and as a historian, and I've talked to other uh, wrestlers, Greg Gagne in particular, and Jim Brunzel. They think very highly of you. And again, I appreciate you reaching out here to me uh, to do this podcast. It's a, it's a great honor. I uh, I always enjoy talking old wrestling. There are so many fun stories, so many fun things about it, and it's just it's great. So I I'm glad to be on your show. Well, thank you very much. First, I want to get into uh, growing up. Uh, you grew up in Minnesota. Is that correct? I did. 
born and raised uh, St. Paul and then some suburbs around uh, Minnesota. And uh, so, yeah, I haven't haven't traveled far from the from the tree there. But uh, back in the old uh, territory wrestling days, I had a lot of fun traveling all over. So that was fun. Okay, and uh, you grew up there. So tell me about how kind of how you grew up a little bit, if you could, and how you got into the wrestling. I mean, I kind of give the intro about your first card, but tell me a little bit more about that, if you could. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the first card, and you talk about the Kelmakoffs against uh, Arakawa and Shibuya. They um, that, that was unusual in those days. That first of all, to have two heel teams mm-hmm. go against each other. But one of the things that was interesting about it is I want to tell you, I was just a month shy of my sixth birthday when I attended that card. It was on August 6th of 1957. And so I was really young. I I went with my dad. Um, I had seen wrestling on TV and, you know, I went with my dad and it was a fun thing to do. The thing that was interesting about it is that as a, I'm going to say six-year-old, I was in the auditorium that night, and I was amazed at how many people were there. I still remember that. I looked around, and it seemed, I'm thinking, everybody in the whole world is here tonight. Because in later years, I understand it. You know, when you're six years old, your your world is very small. It's the kids in your neighborhood you go to school with and and your your family. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the world. Yeah. So it seemed overwhelming to me. But in particular, Vern Gagne was on the card. And my dad was the that was the reason my dad went. My dad, if he, he didn't care for wrestling per se, but he liked Vern Gagne. Yeah. And Vern Gagne was a hometown boy, so I guess that made sense. Yeah. I was enamored with the tag team match. And the thing that really struck me funny was when Marty O'Neill, who I want to tell you right away, I admired the ring announcer. Marty was on TV. I seen him, you know, a couple times on TV and, and he just seemed bigger than life to me. When he introduced the two heel tag teams, there was, uh, the loudest boos I have ever heard. I remember putting my hands up to my ears. They booed the Kelmakoffs, and then they booed the, the Jap. And, and I want to point out, back in those days, they weren't Japanese. They were the dirty Japs. Yeah. And that's, we weren't politically correct. Right. But they, that's what they were billed as in the program, which I still have, the, the actual oh. program from the card. Wow. And it's, they're listed in there as the dirty jabs. Wow. So I'm getting an education as a six year old because I say to my dad, why are they booing both teams? And my dad totally surprised me. He goes, I just hope they kill each other. (laughs) What? What? (laughs) Well, you'll learn later on that it was that World War II sentiment. Coming out, my dad was a veteran. Wrestling played all over the country on emotions. And we had Japanese wrestlers all over the country. We had German wrestlers all over the country. And, of course, we had Russians. Even though Russia was actually an ally to the U.S. in the war, 
Right. But they were still the, the hated Russians, the garlic eating Russians. If you listen, if you look at the program, this is the way they're described. Yeah. And they're going to cripple the American wrestlers and, of course, the Japanese. So both teams are booed so much, so loud. Yeah. Well, then I found it interesting in this tag team match because when when one of the Russians would hit one of the Japanese, the fans would cheer. And, <laughs> and when one of the Japanese would hit a Russian, the fans would cheer. It was it was like exactly what my dad said. Just he wants them to destroy one another. Yeah. So that was really my my first exposure. I had been to a couple of wrestling cards after that, and the memories are very faint. Yeah. When the addiction hit me and took me over for the rest of my life was in September of 1959. Now, in 59, I'm... Eight years old, seven years old, eight years old. Okay. And long story short, my I'm the oldest of six kids in the in the family. Ah. And my parents are fighting in the kitchen, having a Donnybrook of their own. <laughs> and that was normal. I grew up with my parents fighting. Yeah. Uh, they had separated several times through the course of their nine years of marriage. Well, this was the final thing. They they were going to get divorced. And the night they were arguing in the kitchen, I moseyed into the living room, and I happened to turn on the TV, and lo and behold, there was All-Star Wrestling. And on the tube was Tiny Mills and Stan Crusher with a K, Kowalski. And they were literally beating up some poor guy, <laughs> double teaming him and I just thought this was kind of cool. I mean yeah. I'm a masochist I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I'm rooting for the I'm rooting for the bad guys right from the start. Yeah. But I was hooked and Stan Kowalski who I got to know very very well throughout the years mm-hmm. and he really became a good friend. Mm-hmm. Um I would have never guessed that later on that you know I would become friends with him and so many others but Stan was the guy that I credit most of all for getting me, as I told him, he addicted me to this wrestling. Yeah. So as I'm, my parents are divorced, um, it, and I, I don't want to go into a long story here, but it just kind of cements how it all happened. Sure. My parents get divorced. There's a custody battle over kids because allegedly a couple of the kids aren't my dad's. There's been infidelity in the marriage. Two of the kids are going to stay with my mom, and the other four are going to go with my dad. I'm a, I'm one of the four. My dad had no place for us to live. He didn't have a home. He was living out of a room in a. He was living out of a room in an apartment that he rented from somebody. That's how bad things were. Yeah. And so he took myself, my two sisters, and a, a younger brother, and we all went to foster homes, different foster homes. Um, the youngest brother, the little brother, he actually was in the hospital with Mm. a children's hospital suffering from malnutrition that happened while he was living at home with my mom. So things were not good. And he had, he had struggled a lot, but he was there almost a year in the hospital. So my sisters and my, myself were in these foster homes. And over the period of the next couple of years, all three of us are in different foster homes and we are, um, 
not only a foster home, but I was in three different ones over the course of the three years. So just focusing on my situation, that's very tough as a little kid because you you don't belong to this family. You don't have a sense of belonging. And you, you don't, you don't understand at that age why your parents couldn't be together and how come it had to be the way it is. So here's the long story short. Having discovered wrestling on that September night in 59, up until about 1962, going through what I did, I found that wrestling was really something I totally looked forward to on Saturday nights and Monday nights or Tuesday nights when it used to be on two nights a week. Yeah. And I would beg my dad, you know, could, could you take me to the matches? And of course he wasn't a fan again, Yeah. but God bless him. He did find time to take me to some of them and it was collecting those programs. And that was the sort of thing that really kept me kind of in tune with it. In 1959, I, I visited my grandma, my dad's mom, mm-hmm. and my grandma and I walked down to a local drugstore uh, from where she lived here, here in St. Paul. And on the newsstand was a wrestling magazine, Wrestling Review, issue number one, volume one. Now, I didn't make any common, you know, sense to that at all at the time, but it was the premier issue. Mm-hmm. George, I think we lost you. Grandma says, that's a lot of money, honey. Well, you know, 50 cents, yeah, I guess it was. I don't know. But she gave me the 50 cents. And, of course, I am—I don't know why, but I saved that magazine, and I, I, I made sure that every month I got the new one that came out. So I have a complete collection of Wrestling Review. Wow. Through the years. But I thank my grandma for that because – had she not done that, maybe I would have never gotten to know wrestling magazines. And there were others that I obviously bought throughout the years and subscribed yeah. to and that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's how the strange addiction started. As a little kid, it was always a place where I could go when I felt lonely, when I was scared, living in these foster homes. When when my dad wasn't around, my mother didn't want us. We didn't see her for a number, number of years. She didn't want anything to do with us. And that's confusing for a child. You know, what did I do wrong? Yeah. Uh, and, and I will only tell you that my sisters and my brother, God bless them, but they didn't fare as well through all of this because they've had a lot of personal setbacks, issues, drugs, you name it, throughout yeah. the years. Yeah. And so I've always been blessed. I said, you know what? I thank God that he gave me wrestling because yeah. I really was. It was a crutch. And that's the simple truth. I, sometimes I say, you know what? Had I not found it, I may not be here. Yeah. And then, of course, as I grew older, um, by the time I was old enough to get my driver's license, um, I was totally ecstatic because I was I was going to every wrestling card after that. I never missed another one in the Twin Cities, and I would travel to the small towns for the spot shows. Yeah. Um, if we have any any listeners that don't know what a spot show was, it was basically a small town card in usually a, a local high school gymnasium or sometimes the local uh, National Guard Armory. And they usually only had three or four car, three matches on the card. Yeah. 
But some of those cards were dynamic mm-hmm. in, in what they gave us for a small crowd, yeah. small card. Yeah. So that was the story. I, I, I started just kind of finding ways to go to them. Um, and that, that really is where it all started. Well, I'll say you're uh, a resilient person, uh, you know, going through all that in your life and turning out the way you have. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing. A lot of people would have gone a different way, and uh, we're and very very well known that. Yeah, and uh, we're very fortunate uh, that you did what you did because, like I said, uh, a lot of people. In the wrestling world specifically, when I mentioned your name, they know who you are and they have a lot of respect for you. So, uh, yeah, very interesting. Thank you for that. One, by the one way. of the things I'll add to that is that, you know, I mentioned that I saved the very first program as a dumb little six-year-old kid. And for whatever reason, because I had those, I guess, um, at least this is the way I analyze it, because I had those times when, I felt alone and I didn't have a home and I felt alienated. Wrestling sort of was a a blanket. It was a comfort. Mm -hmm. And so I would hang on to those programs. I would hang on to whatever couple of magazines I had at the time. And I guarded those things. They were more important to me than anything I had. Um, If I want to flash forward about 40 years, well, about 30 years, one of my younger daughters said to me when she was, she was about five years old. She said to me one time, she goes, daddy, how come you like wrestling so much? And she lived at the time, you know, of course, when she's little, I had at our, at our home at the time, we had this room in the house. Our, it was another house than the one we're living in now had a, a room in the house that had photos on the wall, wrestlers. And, and I had, you know, my file cabinets of wrestling memorabilia and programs and, newspaper clippings, et cetera. And, it, and so she knew this was important to me, but as a little five-year-old, and she said that to me. And I said something to her that I don't think as a five-year-old she probably comprehended, but I said to her, I said, you know, wrestling is like a good friend. It's always there for you when you need it. And that's really what wrestling was. Yeah. So I, that's the only way I can explain it. I don't think I was the normal average fan mm-hmm. because I know a lot of kids, they start out as fans and then they move on and wrestling's in their past. Mm-hmm. Some people are fans for a year or two and they go on and I just sort of stuck to it. Yeah. There are a lot of wrestlers that were fans before they became wrestlers. You're familiar with Jim Cornette. I am. Yes. Jim Cornette. On a side note, him and I share the same birthday 10 years apart. He's 10 oh. years younger than I am. Okay. We share the same birthday. And I used to, Jim Cornette and I used to exchange wrestling programs back and forth before he ever became famous and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, but Jim Cornette was a wrestling fan. A young kid wanted to take pictures, that sort of thing. So there were a lot of examples of kids that, you know, eventually got involved or were around wrestling. Yeah. And Others, it didn't mean anything. Yeah. I can tell you from my experience, uh, it was an outlet for me as well. Um, I don't remember this. Uh, I'll just quick. Uh, my grandpa, he died when I was about, I think, I, uh, two or three years old, uh, pretty little. But my mom told me that uh, on Sundays when All-Star Wrestling was on, he would uh, put me on his lap 
and we would watch it and I would, I wouldn't cry. I wouldn't do any of that. I just watch it with him. And, you know, back then, um, if you watched wrestling and you said anything, this is in the, you know, late seventies, early eighties, it was kind of a, ah, God, you watch that fake stuff, but it was an outlet for me. I enjoyed it. Uh, I have some programs. I think I talked about with you on the phone. Uh, I have a few of them, and I'll I'll get those to you sometime here. I'll scan them from when uh, they were in Rice Lake, Wisconsin. That's where I was born and raised. And we had at St. Joseph's Catholic School Gymnasium. They would come in uh, at least yearly uh, in the '80s, and I've seen Bachwinkle, uh, Bobby Heenan, uh, the Road Warriors. Uh, Greg, Ganya, John Brunzel, I mean, you name it, they were there. And I was shocked because I was like, oh, my God, these guys are on TV every mm-hmm. week. And I've seen them at a Catholic high school or a Catholic school gymnasium in my small town. Uh, I mean, that doesn't happen now, per se, with those you know bigger promotions. But it was an outlet for me. and. Sure. I, I can still remember the first magazine I bought. It was a Pro Wrestling Illustrated in 86. It had the UWF when they had that big cup and they were pulling it oh, sure, apart from sure. each other. That was sure. my first magazine, that PWI magazine I bought. I wish I don't have it. You don't it. have it anymore. No, of course not. I, was, like I, said, I have it. I have the one you have. I'm telling I'm you, gonna, I have it. I'm going to probably go on eBay sometime and get it. I had a whole bunch, sure. George. I had probably – 200 magazines at one time. And like I said, I was at a stage, this was about 10 years ago. I was like, you know what? I need to get rid of this stuff. And I wish I wouldn't have. I regret it after I did. I had stuff from the eighties. I still have some programs and stuff, like I said, in a folder, but anyways, I'm a fan like you. I'm not a historian, but uh, it was an outlet for me as well. So yeah. I totally understand that. And, yeah. and I, I think, you know, as a side note to that, Brian, I would, I've always felt, you know, we, we always hear stories about kids that young kids that get into trouble and they need, you know, they need something to do and, and, uh, the, you know, they hook up with the wrong group or they get into some drugs and stuff like this mm-hmm. from, from whatever they're going through in their worlds. Yeah. And I have said for years, and, you know, I only know this from my own experience, but I've always said, you know what, as a, as a young kid, when you're in your teens, especially, Find a hobby, mm-hmm. whatever it is that, that you enjoy, something that defines you, mm-hmm. that you can dwell into and make it special to you. One of the things, and I have a granddaughter. She's, four, she's 15 now, but when she was about seven, eight, and, and a couple times, she's made the comment. She goes, I don't want to ever grow up, Grandpa. I, <laughs> I like being a kid. And I told her, and seriously, I told her, I said, you know what? You can grow up and you can always be a kid. So if I use my wrestling, I mean, I'm a, I'm a kid at heart because every time I pick up a program or a magazine, I'm back there in 1957 or 1964 or whatever it is. Yeah. And whatever memories I conjure up when I'm, when I'm researching material, but I also loved old cars when I was a kid. Model cars and real cars, and I collect model cars, and I still do it. I'm a kid at heart. I collect them. Yeah. And when I was in my teenage years, I got into comic books, Superman, Batman, Daredevil, 
man, I loved those things. So I had to have every issue. And I guarded those things because I had to protect them not only from when we moved around, but when my sisters and my brother would try to take them or, or rip them. I mean, you it's a long, it's just a mess. Yeah. And so I guarded myself. I put a, a lock on my door when I'm 16 years old in my house to protect my stuff. Wow. But that's being a kid and never leaving it. And those things, even today, they still enhance your life. Wow, very interesting. That's that's yeah. We have some things in common. I, I'm I'm very uh, uh, surprised that we have so much in common actually with with things. So. Well, most wrestling fans that are <laughs> hanging in there do have stuff in common. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, your interaction uh, with wrestlers uh, when you were. Let's see, in the 70s and 80s, and you went to those lot of cards. Uh, besides the AWA, did you go to any of the NWA matches, uh, WWF then in that era, and be able to meet those guys and talk with those guys and anything like that? The answer is yes. Um, I noticed when you, you had sent me the, the little outline, you had mentioned the word um, – I think you said interaction with pro wrestlers. Yes. And I think that's, you know, when I looked at that, now that I'm thinking about it, I think the best way to explain it is when I was a kid in the 60s. Now, you have to remember that by 1968 or 69, I'm 16, 17 years old. And wrestling back then, then in that era, it was very hard to get past a security guard by the locker room door or very hard to talk to a wrestler. The wrestlers alienated themselves. Yeah. You know, they presented this business as 100% real mm-hmm. and you just were not able to have access to them. Here's how it happened with me. And again, you know, I, I'm a firm believer, the older I get that everything that happens in our lives, if you look back, Everything. It doesn't matter what it is in your life. If you look back, you see that life is like a big jigsaw puzzle. Mm. And there's always these pieces that all of a sudden you see that piece fit in. And that's the reason it did, because now I found this piece later on. And that's really what life is. So in 1967, I get my driver's license. Now, it opens up the door for me to start going to the local wrestling cards, and there were times in the 60s when the Minneapolis Wrestling Club, the parent company of the AWA, Mm -hmm. they were presenting sometimes two cards a week, usually on a Tuesday night and a Saturday night. They'd run Minneapolis and St. Paul. They kind of had various storylines that were connected, but sometimes they'd have their own little thing going. Mm -hmm. And it was important for me to start going, so I would purchase a program. Well, at the same time, I'm buying the wrestling magazines, and in some of the old wrestling reviews and Wrestling World magazines and some of the others, they would have these pen pals uh, sections mm-hmm. in the back of the magazine. And so I took it upon myself that I'd find somebody in in uh, Indianapolis, and I'd send them a letter. 
and wow. and say, you know, I'm a fan in Minneapolis, and I go to the cards, and wouldn't it be neat if we could exchange programs? You could send me yours, and I'd send you mine. Yeah. And lo and behold, I sort of worked out this network. Well, eventually that turned into where I even knew some of the promoters in different cities, okay. and I could send them a letter. One that comes to mind was Nick Roberts out of Lubbock, Texas. I don't know, you, you're a wrestling fan in mm-hmm. the – 80s. So you remember yeah. Baby Doll? Yes. The, the lady, yeah. lady wrestler Baby yeah. Doll, Nicola Roberts. Yeah. Well, Nick Roberts was her dad. Oh. Okay. And he had been a wrestler in his day in the AWA back in the early 60s. So I sent him a letter and I, you know, this is in 68, 69. I said, you know, I used to see you wrestle in the Twin Cities and wondering if you could send me the programs from, from, uh, Lubbock. And, you know, I would be happy to send our program to you. Now, I'm guessing the promoters could get any program they wanted if they wanted to by just calling the office they wanted it from. Yeah. But Nick Roberts started sending me the Lubbock programs. Oh, wow. So all of a sudden, I know what's going on in Lubbock. And then I did the same thing with others. Paul Bosch in Houston, who was Ah, the promoter there. Yeah. I started getting the Houston programs. So I'm getting – and Houston – ran weekly Friday night cards for about 50 years. The only time they never wrestled a Friday night card was that if it was on Christmas Eve. Okay. Otherwise, they had 52 cards a year. Wow. So there's 52 programs. Yep. So what I had to start doing when I, when I was going to the matches in the Twin Cities was I would go and I'd buy our quarter. I think actually they were a dime then. They were still a dime and 15 cents. But I'd buy our four-page program in the Minneapolis or the St. Paul card, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't buy just one. I'd buy 10 or 15, depending on the number that I had to send out to these people that I was going to get programs from. Yeah. So I'm going to the matches, and I have these things protected in an envelope on my lap. I guard them. Well, the more I went to the cards, Marty O'Neill, that guy that I looked up to 10 years earlier who stood in the middle of the ring and who I see every week on TV, the more I went to the cards, I had my own seat in the corner close to the ring, and Marty would come down the aisle, and he would say, hey there, young fella, and that would be it. He'd go to the matches or go to the ringside table. Yeah. Well, he sees me with this, evidently, he sees me with this envelope each card, and I'm looking at my program, and then I stick it in there, and He comes up to me one night and he says, I got to ask you a question. Why do you buy so many programs? I said, well, and I told him that I send them, you know, a friend in Tampa and a friend in Indianapolis and I have somebody in Boston and so on. He he just kind of shook his head. He goes, wow, I didn't think anybody would take it that seriously. And then out of the blue, he said, you know, I'm going to be driving down to Ortonville. I had no idea where in the world Ortonville was. Yeah. Southern Minnesota, of course, now I realize, you know. Uh-huh. But he says, I'm going to be driving down to Ortonville this week. And, you know, would you like to ride along with me? I know as a 17-year-old kid, I probably was just a little bit short of filling my pants. <laughs> this was This was huge. Yeah. Marty O'Neill, you know. But, yeah, I said, sure, I, I'd be happy to. So I, he gave me his address. I drove over to his house on the day of this card, and Marty drove 
we drive to Ortonville and we talk. And that was the first out or the first in that I really had yeah. because Marty trusted me. And Mar- Marty used to tell me things and I would just kind of connect the pieces. It wasn't like he revealed anything, mm-hmm. but I would connect the pieces. And in 1967, that was when Dr. X had arrived in the territory. Okay. Dick Byer, who was the destroyer nationally okay. under a mask. Well, I don't know why, but, and I, I still have this today. I took a picture of the destroyer and I colored in with black magic marker, put trunks and a tunic on him and colored his mask black. And I figured out, I said, this has to be the destroyer, Dr. X. So I'm in the car with Marty this one time. This was another time that we had traveled. And I said, you know, isn't it funny that some people don't know who Dr. X really is? And all Marty would say was, yeah, sometimes they just don't figure it out from looking at the magazines or anything. He never told me. Yeah. But I, I took it as gospel. Well, I was right. Yeah. Yeah. It was Dick Byer. It was the destroyer. And so that was kind of the start. Marty was the, the, the end. And the more I hung around with Marty, the more the wrestlers were more accessible. Like they knew I, that I wasn't going to blow the whistle on something that they said or because right. Fabe, I, I got to tell you, the first wrestler that ever let me come in the dressing, the locker room with them was Red Bastine. Oh, okay. I came in, Red Bastine said, come in. Now, I go in, this is in the Minneapolis Auditorium, and here's the best way I can explain this to you. You look at look at my fingers here. Mm-hmm. The, the Minneapolis Auditorium had a door here for the baby faces to go in. It was a locker room. Uh-huh. And then you walk down the hall, and there's a door down here that the the heels go into. Right. Well, it's like, okay, to the common fan outside that big wall, there are two locker rooms. The reality was it was one big locker room, <laughs> but the, the illusion was the heels go in one and the beef. So, so Red Bastine and I, and I'm, I'm really, I'm very shy. I'm kind of petrified, actually. He yeah. says, come on, just come in with me. So I go in, and this is what I, what I heard as soon as I came in. We opened the door and there was chatter all over from these guys. And as soon as that door opened and they saw this young kid, I'm serious. The old story, the old theory where you can hear a pin drop. It was cafe, baby. Shut up. There's an outsider. Well, Red, he said, don't worry about the kid. He's okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So it it all happened by accident, but. The little things that I heard in the locker room, and they were discussing the match. Yeah. You know, the, the heel and the baby face were sitting on the bench talking about their match that night, yeah. talking about the finish, yeah. what they were going to do. Wow. And one of the things I learned, a lot of people say, well, they used to rehearse the whole match and everything was all rehearsed. I can honestly tell you I never heard that. Yeah. They yeah. would know what they're doing for the finish. Mm-hmm. Then they worked it out in the match how they were going to get there. And that's all they did. Yeah. So that the match ended so that they can continue the story for a next, another rematch or next week, whatever it was. So that's kind of how I got involved in that part of it. And then by 1970, 
I had uh, had the opportunity. My dad was on the auxiliary police force in Cottage Grove, the city I was living in at the time. And the police department wanted to put on a fundraiser. They suggested that because I was around wrestling, they knew I liked wrestling. (laughs) Maybe we could do a wrestling card. And that's what wrestling advertised. They would come to your city for fundraisers and that sort of thing. So I went with one of the police officers to the Minneapolis Wrestling Club. And I'm talking with Bill Casisto, who at that time was the matchmaker for the Minneapolis Wrestling Club. Now, I don't know if you know, but Bill Casisto was a former Olympic wrestler who had a a career in the 40s, early 50s, and then he had a serious injury, and he was no longer wrestling. He's now a matchmaker working in the Vern Gagne Wally Carbo promotion. So I'm talking with Bill Casisto at the wrestling office. And I couldn't believe how upfront he was. He says, do you have anybody in mind that you'd like on the card? Well, I'm a big fan of Dr. X. Dr. X was my favorite wrestler at that point. Okay. I said, well, I'd love to have Dr. X. He said, well, we'll, we can see if he's available. Okay. And I said, and you know, maybe we could get him to have a, you know, against Pepper Gomez. Now, Pepper Gomez at the time had just come out of a long storyline feud on All-Star Wrestling with Dr. X. So I thought this would be cool to have the match in my little gymnasium. Yeah. <laughs> he said, okay, we'll, we'll work on that. And then he said, and then we'll put a couple of other matches together. If that's okay with you. And I said, that'd be great. Well, lo and behold, I get Dr. X and I get Pepper Gomez. And then he gives me, uh, Lanza, Blackjack Lanza and Bob Windham. Blackjack Mulligan. Yeah, but he was Bob Windham in those days. He yeah. was he was rookie year, a couple of rookie years. He was working with being trained under Vern. Yeah, and then he gives me a guy named Lee Matson, who was basically a TV enhancement jobber wrestler. I don't ever use the word jobber. I use them as TV enhancements, but like they are that. called jobbers because their job was to lose. Yeah, <laughs> he gave me Lee Matson against Kenny J. Kenny J. Soundbuster. That was, was going to be my card. So I was going to have the opener, Kenny J against Lee Matson. Then I was going to have Lanza against uh, Wyndham, who, of course, was the baby face. Right. And then my main event, Dr. X and Pepper Gomez. Yeah. And I'm excited because this is my high school gym. I am a, uh, a senior in high school, a couple months away from graduating. Yeah. And I get to be the ring announcer. Oh. Because obviously they I'm gonna put this I put this card together. Yeah. So this was gonna be my first time at ring announcing. And I was just gonna copy Marty O'Neill. To me it was simple. Yeah. You know. Well, about twenty minutes before the actual card begins, somebody walks up to me and says, Somebody wants to see you in the locker room. Okay. So I go to the locker room. Well, now in, in, in the high school locker room, you know what they look like. You have your lockers and you have a bench in front of the locker and usually it's in an L shape. Yeah. Well, here, here in the, in the locker room, Dr. X is sitting on one bench and Pepper Gomez is sitting on the other side on the bench right here. Mm-hmm. And Dr. X says to me, he's got his mask on. I've never met the man at this point. He's talking in full Dr. X voice. 
He says, we've got a problem with our, with our match tonight. He says, Gomez here can't wrestle. He's got an inner ear infection that's making him dizzy. And Gomez was there. Yeah. I said, I just kind of go, okay. So Dr. X says to me, so here's what we're going to do. He says, we're going to put, and I always have to make sure I get this right when I tell this. He says, we're going to put, I got to get this right. We're going to put me, meaning X, Mm -hmm. me and Wyndham against Matson and Jay in the main event tag team match. Me and Wyndham against Matson and Jay. Well, I don't know where I got this thought from, but I said to him where I got the guts from. I said to him, I said, well, could we do it a different way? He says, I don't, you know, and again, he's talking in his, I wish I could imitate his voice, but he's yeah. talking in his Dr. X voice. He says, I don't care. What do you want to do? I said, well, I'm kind of thinking, what if we put you, meaning Dr. X, mm-hmm. and Lee Matson as a team against Jay and Bob Windham as a team? And I said, that way we've got a top wrestler on both teams. Yeah. He says, I don't care if that's what you want to do. And that's what we did. Wow. So I walked out of the locker room. Now I had a new job to do. I had to go out to the audience. I'm feeling pretty good about myself because I thought to myself, you know what? I just signed my first main event. (laughs) And I thought it was going to be better than what the doc was giving me. Yeah. So, But now I had to walk out to the the crowd that we had, and now it's like two minutes to eight, we're supposed to start. And I have to go out and tell them that, guess what? Pepper Gomez isn't going to be here. And the other problem was, I, I on a backtrack, after he had told me Gomez couldn't wrestle, he told me that we have another problem. Jack Lanza's stranded in Chicago. He's not going to be here. That's how it ended up where Wyndham didn't have an opponent. Oh, no. <laughs> so it was disaster. So when I thought of that main event, I was very excited. But I had to go out and I had to tell the crowd that I'm really sorry to say this, but we've I've been notified that Pepper Gomez, he is here, you know, ladies and gentlemen, but he's unable to wrestle. And we do have a good card for you anyway. And Dr. X and Bob Windham are here, and we're going to have a good card. That was my first experience. The first card I was ever involved in was a total debacle, but it came together. And I am here to tell you, and I I say this sincerely, Bob Windham and Kenny J, they lost to Dr. X and Lee Madsen. Uh Kenny J, of course, took the fall. But I will tell you that was one of the most fun tag team matches I've ever watched in my life. And, of course, I always sit back and say, you know what? I put that one together. You did? That's great. That's a great story. And that's how it started. Please join us for our second part of our conversation with George Shire on our next podcast.
This is Matt Hardy, and you are listening to the VOC Nation. Rock and Roll Union for the past two years has been the place for rock and roll, new rock and roll, debuting rock and roll, and some of the old classics as well. We have welcomed guests from around the world, national artists and more. We have excited many people by our live events. We've welcomed everybody into the fold, and we continue to do so on a weekly basis. Guys, that is Rock and Roll Union, and that is what we do for you. Saturdays, 6 p.m. Eastern, VOCNation.com. VOC Nation provides live daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with the hosts and guests by phone call, email, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts include the legendary Ken Resnick, who you probably remember from the AWA and WWE, former WCW performer The Maestro, Wes Briscoe, who you probably remember from Impact, Brady Hicks, who you remember from Pro Wrestling Illustrated, former WWE and TNA star Shelly Martinez, and former Philly radio personality Bruce Wirt. VOC Nation's two most popular shows are Wrestling With History, featuring Ken Resnick and Bruce Wirt, streaming live on Wednesday nights at 9.30 Eastern, and of course In The Room, featuring Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks and WCW alum The Maestro. And by the way, both of these shows take callers live during the show. What are you waiting for? Go listen live right now at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all of our podcasts by searching for VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. Oh, and follow them on Twitter, too, at VOC Nation. Hola, this is your amiga, Shelly from Cali. To let you know, you can catch me here on VOC Nation for Shelly Live. You never know what the hell I'm going to be talking about. Sometimes I have guests. Sometimes I let you on in the cheese mess, spill a little tea. Sometimes I cry. You have to tune in to find out why. And I also take your calls. I love chatting with you guys and seeing what the hell you guys are thinking. So meet me here on the VOC Nation. Be there or be square. The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network.